Welcome to the Xingam Dialogue. I am your host, I.J. McCann. I have a fascinating conversation for you today. My guest is Michael Adam Ferguson. Michael is a cognitive neurology postdoc at the Laboratory for Brain Network Imaging and Modulation at the Harvard Medical School. Michael is also the host of the Luminous Brain Podcast. Michael is having an event called the Soul and Brain at the Joseph B. Martin Conference Center at Harvard Medical School. It's going to be a full day experience. There's going to be experts from the field of neuroscience, philosophy, medicine, and art. And the, uh, the whole event is geared around how the ancient theories of the soul map onto our current understanding of the human brain. In today's episode, we talked about artificial intelligence and whether artificial intelligence will eventually have consciousness, what the difference between consciousness and intelligence is. And we also talked about psychedelics and the current research that is being done on them, uh, the potential that psychedelics have for the human brain. So please join me in welcoming Michael Adam Ferguson to the Gazingham Dialogue. Hey, Michael. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here. How's, how are you doing? How's your day? Uh, it's been good. Boston is actually really lovely right now. We've got warm weather, blue skies, so I can't complain too much. Okay, Boston, Boston. How far is Boston from like the closest Canadian city? Do you know? Yeah, so we're about a five and a half hour drive from Montreal, depending on how heavy your foot is. Okay. Do you, do you come up to Canada much? Have you come uh, up? I was in Canada, uh, in Montreal, to be specific, for a neuroscience conference at the Montreal Neurological Institute last September. Okay. And then I've been to Toronto quite a few times to lecture at a community center there. Yeah. Is the, um, the neuroscience scene, is it a happening scene? Oh, in, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Montreal is one of the world leaders for neuroscience. Um, in fact, the coordinate system, the three-dimensional coordinate system that is used for brain mapping is called the MNI coordinate system, the Montreal Neurological Institute coordinate system. Okay. Is, it, is that because, is that because the, um, what is that? What's the um, neural, what's it called? Neural map, neural, oh man. You know that, you know that prof down at UFT who, um, who's the father of AI? Um, I'm not sure which one you're talking about here. Jeffrey, Stephen, the guy who who who, um, who worked on neural. What's it called? Oh, neural networks. Neural networks. Is that is that because um, is that because of him? Like, is there a connection with him? Uh, he's definitely a part of it. So the MNI is definitely a leader in terms of artificial intelligence and okay. this whole neural network strategy for AI. What's the uh, like? What's the latest finding in neuroscience? Is it? that we've come across because okay so. um, yeah there's so many <laughs> <laughs> like is, is is the latest finding that we um we're, we're getting closer to creating a conscious machine is well that so that's an interesting question and that really does become a semantic issue about how you understand the concept of consciousness and then how you understand the idea of imitations versus mm. authentic instantiations of consciousness okay can you explain okay what do you mean like um, imitation sure so there are some people who will defend the position that no matter what we do and how closely we can mimic the properties of human behavior that we will never be able to create a machine 
that actually has the same qualitative consciousness that humans have. And this actually segues quite nicely into Aristotle, believe it or not. Okay. So um, Aristotle has a hypothesis of the mind and of the soul mm-hmm. that can generally be referred to as hylomorphism. Yeah, what's that? And so the hylomorphic concept is that functions are intrinsically linked to the forms that support those functions. Okay. So bringing this back to the conversation about machine intelligence versus biological intelligence, just by simple nature of the fact that the form of the substrate will never be identical, mm-hmm. a hylomorphic argument would be that the functions that are emergent from those different substrates can never be identical. That you have to have identical substrates in order to perfectly imitate and perfectly replicate the functions that are being supported by those substrates. So does that mean that the even if we were to create like a, a silicone-based machine, they would never be it could never be a human 2.0 or it, that it could be a human 2.0 under this Aristotelian hylomorphism. So under this concept of hylomorphism, really taking it to its purest level, one would say that there's no level of imitation using silicon-based substrates that could create an identical form just by virtue of the fact that the elemental matter is never going to be identical to biological organic substrates. And therefore, you will always have some kind of gap in the function mm. that is being supported by those underlying substrates. Okay. So could, could, you, could, we, could we develop um, intelligence in the sense of, uh, say, like a dolphin intelligence, the, the same level as dolphin intelligence with machines? Is that possible? Or, or is it that we could develop, is it possible to develop um, artificial intelligence um, if not to human capacity, to the closest uh, animal kin that we have. Yeah, so again, just relying on a very, very purest interpretation of this concept of hylomorphism. Yeah. As long as we're using some kind of elemental matter that yeah. is distinct in its nature from the same biological organic substrate that we're imitating, yeah. there will always be some difference, however minute it might be. So we could approximate it and we could yeah. say, okay, we'll reach some kind of an asymptote with regard to the level of imitative qualities. Mm-hmm. But just leaning on this, this purest notion of hylomorphism, which is that function is intrinsically emergent from its underlying forms, as long as you're imitating an organic system with a silicon substrate, there will always be some difference in the properties. So this brings us to an important point, though, which is that we should be careful about our terminologies here. So intelligence is not the same thing as consciousness. Hmm. So I'm actually a lot more optimistic, excuse me, about us generating some kind of synthetic intelligence than I am about us generating some kind of synthetic consciousness. Why is that? So intelligence is generally understood as pattern recognition and pattern completion. And pattern recognition and pattern completion that can lead to these phenomena of creativity. Um, And to to conceptualize a machine or a synthetic system that is able to recognize and complete patterns and even be creative in some measure is much more manageable for me to 
understand than it is some kind of a synthetic system that is conscious and that is experiencing an internal world of subjectivity in the same way that I am. Okay. So intelligence here just means pattern, pattern recognition. So the computers, the AIs, the neural network AIs that use, I mean, the AIs that use neural networks, they can be intelligent in that sense, in this sense. That's right. And I will say also that this becomes immediately a philosophical question Mm -hmm. about what do we mean by intelligence? Yeah. So this concept of pattern recognition and completion is usually referred to as fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence. Why? That's right. Um, So it's, it's the term that has been coined by psychologists who are really trying to create some definition of intelligence that we could measure with a test in a laboratory setting. Okay. So if you have different matrices, different patterns where there's a gap in the pattern that the research participant is seeing, but they're able to successfully anticipate what would be the shape that would complete that pattern. That would be an example of a way that a psychologist Mm -hmm. would operationalize a fluid intelligence test. But you do have other types of intelligence. So for example, social intelligence, musical intelligence, Mm -hmm. and this is a very hot and ongoing area, both within cognitive science as well as within philosophy of mind, Mm -hmm. to create an an ontology of intelligence, or in other words, to create some kind of a a taxonomy or a systemized way of categorizing the different flavors of intelligence that exist. So would intelligence be different from um, rationality? Uh, That's a good question. That's a great question. So rationality would certainly be an expression of logical processes. Okay. And logical processes in turn are an instantiation of pattern recognition and of pattern completion. So they're certainly, they're certainly linked, but uh-huh. I would be hesitant to collapse them and say that they have a perfect identity with one another. So it, would machines, with a, would AIs ever be able to attain universals? If, that's a, if, one, yeah. if one believes in universals. That's a great question. Um, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> See, I really do think that we have something very, very special with our bioevolutionary heritage as a species. Okay. Yeah. Um, within our DNA, we have inherited the fingerprints of generation after generation after generation of experiences. Mm-hmm. And so our platform for our operating system of mind is so enriched with priors that priors priors. So in other words, with background assumptions and with information that is part of what's termed our phylogenetic memory or in other words, genetic memory. That's right. So in other words, the information that has been compressed into our DNA and passed down from, from organism to organism within the human lineage. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's it's such a tall order to imagine us completely unraveling and disentangling all of the information that we inherit mm-hmm. in our biological software package, as it were, that to, uh, to make that leap and to say that a machine is now going to be able to apprehend things that we might refer to as universals or transcendentals right. is... Um, I'm not going to say that it's impossible, but that's that requires an imagination that might be a little bit bigger than my own. 
Okay, so if if we so if we think of the concept triangle, right? I I mean we t always tend to think of a particular instance instantiation of a triangle, whether it's like you know it's isosceles or whatever it is, whether it's red. So, but the concept of triangles, would you say that's just pattern recognition that's happening? Um, you're asking really great questions up front. <laughs> so something like that, where it's like, yeah, so simple, simple geometrical universals. Okay, yeah, that I could see having, you know, machines. And in fact, you know, with computer vision, we are getting close to the point of saying, okay, now let's point this software package at a series of images and have it pick out all the triangles, have it pick out all the cats, have it pick out all the dogs. Let's go Google Photos. Exactly, exactly. But now if by universals you mean let's turn a machine onto a set of stimuli and have it identify justice or have it identify beauty or have it identify something that is a little bit more of an esoteric transcendental, that's where, I'm not going to rule it out, but that's where that becomes a much more formidable problem. Okay, so... If we, if we, in terms of consciousness, right, is it, do you think that consciousness is something that um, we can recreate in machines? Do you think it's possible to recreate consciousness? <sighs> That's a good question. So again, it, it really does come down to semantics and to definitions about what we mean by consciousness. Because some people, when they talk about consciousness, they mean attention. They mean focused attention. And so can you say that a machine could, in principle, have something that simulates attention and that can focus its attention on a particular domain of information? Sure. But if by consciousness you mean that it has an internal phenomenology and an internal set of qualia and subjectivity, that, that becomes harder to to first of all to conceptualize but then second of all to even validate um one of you know probably the most famous philosophy articles in this vein uh -huh. is titled what is it like to be a bat right and the short gist of that paper is that if there is an entity uh -huh. for which you can imagine a what is it likeness yeah then you can justifiably say that that entity has a conscious experience. Mm -hmm. And so if you're asking the question, what is it like to be a machine? Yeah. <laughs> that becomes harder for me to, to wrap my head around there being this, this authentic internal life yeah. that's comparable to the way that biological organisms experience a, what is it likeness? Okay. But, it, but I mean, we would say that consciousness, I mean, uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't say we, I, I, I would say me. Yeah. <laughs> I would say consciousness was, consciousness came about through our evolution that we developed. I mean, obviously there's a lot of criticisms as to whether you can get um, consciousness from matter, right? Um, but it seems like that's the way consciousness came up because, I mean, we would think, Dogs are conscious, but they're not uh, intelligent. Or maybe maybe intelligence is not the right word. Dogs aren't rational, right? Okay. So they have consciousness. Maybe the lobster is conscious too. Um, 
earthworm semi-conscious uh so it seemed like if we could create this like super sophisticated silicone based machine let's just see i i use the term machine like very vaguely and then we gave it a bunch of like coding and said hey and then we 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 took someone's brain you know firing and then like plugged it into this little machine it would seem that the machine would be conscious in some way maybe like as conscious as an earthworm would you, wouldn't, would you what would you think so i feel a lot more comfortable if you think i'm, you think I'm wrong just say you're wrong <laughs> well i mean I, and frankly i don't know like i personally feel more comfortable assigning the possibilities of intelligence than okay. i do consciousness and mm. uh you don't necessarily have to have consciousness in order to have intelligence. So for example, you could have a system of people that are collaborating on a particular problem. Okay. And there could be a higher order collective intelligence that emerges from the interactions of those people. Okay. Now no one actor within that system. Yeah has embodied that consciousness, so to speak, of the higher group level processing, but you can still have a collective intelligence effect even if no one component of that system is fully consciously aware of the intelligent process that is transpiring. Okay, so, so then what does that mean for... Uh, super sophisticated machine. Does yeah, mean- so so it means that I would place my bets on super sophisticated machines yeah. becoming highly intelligent yeah. in real ways before yeah. they become conscious in real ways. Or, you know, let's take this in different directions. There are actually a lot of people, mm-hmm. as, as foreign as this might sound to some listeners, but a lot okay. of very serious scientists mm-hmm. and very reputed botanists who will argue that plants have intelligence and that plants are intelligent. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that plants are conscious. That's not to say that plants are having some kind of internal subjectivity. Yeah. Uh, You can apply this even to ecosystems, to the idea that, that a particular system within nature could have a form of intelligence, but that's not necessarily to say that it has a form of consciousness. Is, would this be similar to Arist- the Aristotelian uh, vegetative life, the Aristotelian soul? Veg- what is it? It's called veg- ve- vegetative soul? That's right, yeah. So with the vegetative soul, that goes in a little bit of a different direction. So okay. Aristotle, yeah. Um, great question, though. This is very insightful, and it grounds us back into the De Anima, which is Aristotle's treatise mm-hmm. on the soul, on the yeah. anima. And he says that plants have nutritive faculties okay um but that they lack different higher level faculties such as imagination or intellect mm-hmm. um so those modern conversations where botanists are asserting that plants have a form of intelligence mm-hmm. do not map on with a one-to-one correspondence to the way that aristotle is thinking about oh. the intellect so okay. the intellect is something special that in aristotle's worldview is unique to humans and that, that the intellect really is what sets us as a species apart from all of those species. Okay. So um, could we not interpret 
these um, scientists and botanists, when they use the term um, intelligence as plants being intelligence, as meaning um, the nutritive soul in Aristotle, what, like why couldn't we map it on, or why couldn't we map Aristotle's um, nutritive soul onto what they're saying? Mm-hmm. Um, so once you start to talk about intelligence, yeah. unless we really broaden the definition, mm-hmm. it's hard to map it into Aristotle outside of the intellective faculty. Okay. And again, that intellective faculty is what's unique in the Aristotelian world to the human capacities. So what does Aristotle mean by the intellect then? Um, so the word noose which is typically translated as intellect, can also be translated as understanding. Mm -hmm. And um, this is Greek. uh Uh-huh. That's right. Yep. And so it has a lot to do, for example, with the ability to contemplate, um, with the ability to grasp at universals, like we were talking about with um, virtues or with um, aesthetics. And that becomes a little bit harder to square with what we observe in plant life. Okay. So yeah, we, again, this is where it does become tricky because each camp, whether it's history of philosophy, whether it's machine philosophy, whether it's cognitive science, like everybody's using a same set of vocabulary. Yeah. They're indicating it in very different ways from one another. Okay. Hmm. So as a, you'd be a neuroscientist, a neurophilosopher. Which term would I? Which term is it correct? Yeah, so um, I get paychecks for being a neuroscientist. Okay, <laughs> but my passion is at the intersection of neuroscience and philosophy. Okay, um, would you think that? So, uh, what was it? Blade, did you watch? Did you ever watch the Blade Runner two thousand uh, twenty fifty? The new one that came out with like Ryan Reynolds. I did not know. Okay, <laughs> I don't know if I should spoil, but I'll, I won't spoil it. But I'll kind of tell you. So he kind of fall, he falls in love with an AI, uh, an AI, right? So I've I've wondered, okay, if we develop AIs to be sophisticated, to have this some sort of intelligence, right? Not conscious, but they can replicate human um, human uh, reactions, somehow replicate human emotion. In so far as you know, they're sad, and then they'll say they're sad, and they you know they have like they can change their voice tempo. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. <clears throat> Do you think that in the coming future we'll start to have trouble with humans um, falling in love with robots, and then from there saying, "Hey, we should give some sort of rights to these robots." Do you think that these, if we if we develop very sophisticated robots, that they would have some sort of right? What do you think? Those are great questions, but. Um... I I personally am pretty shy with regard to this idea that robots are going to be so close yeah. to all of the subtleties of human expression, of pupil dilation, of micro expressions in the face, of subtle changes in vocal intonations and body posturing that we're going to be able to fall in love, as it were, with okay. them. Um, I mean, are people going to have kink and fetish attachments and sexual desire for yeah. different, you know, sex bots? Sure, that's already happening. Yeah, but, it's already happening. Yeah. Um, but as far as like, will humans 
lobby for the right to marry a machine and then yeah. to be recognized with tax benefits. And that I, I have a hard time seeing that becoming a serious reality. Really, I do. Why? Is it, what if, what if, what if the AI that, that gets developed, it's, it's not like a, it's not a physical thing, physical human looking humanoid, but like, yeah. but like a, you know, but like a phone that, you know that in Japan they 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 developed this um I think it's an app, like a girlfriend app, and she'll yeah. like talk to you, she'll message you throughout the day, how are you doing? And it's kinda weird, but you know, people people are like super into it. So like these um like AI very sophisticated AI where they're not a humanoid but a, like an app in your phone. Yeah. Mimics like a long distance relationship. Yeah. Well, so as far as the concept of social incorporation and human rights, the fact of the matter is that we live in a world where gender and sexual minorities still don't have universal rights, where racial minorities still don't have universal human rights, where women still don't have universal human rights. And so when we're living in this society where, unfortunately, for the foreseeable future, actual humans yeah. are excluded from the radius of human rights, I have a very hard time taking seriously the notion that artificial forms of life are going to be encompassed in the totality of human rights. So, so there's maybe like in 500 years. We'll see. Hopefully, hopefully we'll have hacked our biology so that we can be around and observing what's happening in 500 years. <laughs> so, okay. So moving away from, uh, oops, moving away from these, uh, these, these uh, robots that you can fall in love with. What does it what does it mean though for I think there's like um they're doing developments where um uh, you can put stuff on your brain and it reads it reads your electrical impulse and you can control certain movements in the computer. Is it possible that these things will eventually be able to read your mind in quotes where say you're thinking of a thought or a memory and then the memory will projected onto the street. Is that possible? Um, so there's some really interesting work coming out of UC Berkeley by a researcher named Jack Gallant. And Jack Gallant, Gallant. Uh -huh, G-A-L-L-A-N-T. Okay, and for maybe a decade plus, he's been, um, I would say, the leader, certainly one of the leaders, if not the leader, in this idea of reverse encoding the brain. And he's done really remarkable work using functional magnetic resonance imaging, where they scan the human visual cortex. And based on the patterns of neural activity in the visual cortex, okay. these researchers are able to reassemble an approximation of what an individual is viewing. What does that, what does that mean? So in other words, you could have a participant who's watching a movie Okay. in a brain scanner. And if you Google this, there's actually some cool YouTube video demonstrations of this from his laboratory. So you take the neural signature that is coming out of the person's visual cortex while they're watching a movie. And then just based on that pattern yeah. of neural activity, a machine algorithm is able to recapitulate the images what? that that person is viewing. No. Yeah, that they can reconstruct. It's an approximation and it's crude and there still is a lot of technical development that needs to take place. Okay. But that that is already a reality. Now let's be clear though, that's not the same thing as 
full-blown mind reading where we can discern the content of thought and particularly the content of abstract thought. Okay. But at that basic level of primary visual perception, that technology already exists to where we can make crude approximations of an individual's visual perceptions mm -hmm. solely based on neural scans of their visual cortex in the brain. So it's, so it's, what does this guy do? Reverse encoding? That's right. So he put a lot of volunteers into brain scanners. Okay. He recorded what was going on in their visual cortex when they watched. How do you record your visual cortex? Uh, so they used functional magnetic resonance imaging. So fMRI. Yeah. So these participants were watching videos and they had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of video watching. And simultaneously, while participants in the scanner were watching videos, the researchers were recording the patterns of activity in the visual cortex. And so then they created a template and they said, okay, if this particular shape appears, yeah. then it's associated with this particular pattern in the visual cortex. If this particular color field appears, it's associated with this particular signature of activity in the visual cortex. Mm -hmm. And then once they collected enough data, and established a sufficiently rich library of correlations between yeah. video stimulus and neural response. Hmm. Then they were able to do decoding to where you could have somebody lie in the scanner, yep. you could record what was going on in the visual cortex, yep. and then without any prior knowledge of what they were actually watching, you could reconstruct that video based solely upon the activity patterns in their visual cortex. So the, what does that mean? What does that mean for the mind, um, the mind-body problem? Does that mean that the mind is the brain? Um, it does not. It, we I wouldn't go that far to say that it means that the mind is the brain, but it certainly means that there are reliable patterns in our visual qualia mm -hmm. that are directly correspondent to specific patterns in the cortex, the visual cortex of our brain. So is it possible that? If I grasp the concept circularity, it's a particular part of my brain, and I'm watching this video, this particular part of my brain will light up and then So yeah, so let's be really careful here because we're now we're talking about two different things. Like one is the visual experience of seeing a circle, and that's low-level perception. Okay. And that's a sensory phenomenon. But now grasping the concept of circleness. Right. is an abstraction okay. that occurs in a different part of the brain. So our prefrontal cortex is involved in that. And as far as mapping out how abstractions occur, we've got a long, long way and a very interesting way. It's going to be exciting, but we're pretty far off from being able to use patterns of activity in the frontal cortex to reverse predict the content of abstract concepts. Okay. Okay. So... If they're able to do this, is it um, this this professor? He presumably had lots and lots of um, volunteers doing this, and so is, so is that particular the what is it called the visual cortex? Uh huh. So everyone's visual cortex when they view a particular, I'm assuming they all watch the same video when they were recorded, or so. Yep, you. You had to have lots of repeat trials. So in other words, lots of people watching the same video content yeah. so that you can get a normative average 
for yeah. which parts of the brain are consistent across different individuals. That's just so crazy to me that all whoever, how many ever people that they were how many ever people took this uh, decided to volunteer all when they, whatever they were watching the same part of their brain I don't know lit up <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word right yeah no and it it says I think a lot about our commonality you know we we tend to place a lot of emphasis on our differences whether those are cultural differences or individual differences yeah but work like this really does indicate that there is this common architecture in the brain and in the mind mm-hmm. for the human experience okay so what would you say the um what would you say that the the the, the, the mind body problem right what would you say that um is it are we still uh what's that the hard problem of consciousness and the easy problem of consciousness, is that right? Yeah. With yep. uh, David Chalmers? Uh, yeah, so he's one of the people who talks a lot about these problems of how it is that you get qualitative subjective experiences yeah. from physical matter. So, Okay, so with, with all this research going on in neuroscience, um, do you think we'll ever be able to sol- solve the hard problem of consciousness? Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I'll just punt. Yeah, I'll I'll just punt a little bit and say I think that we should absolutely continue trying to make better models that relate mental phenomena and mental properties to neural phenomena and neural events and neural properties. Whether we're ever going to be able to say, "Haha, we've now solved this and we understand it completely," um, is a secondary question to the primary question of, is it valuable to continue pursuing a better understanding? And I think that it certainly is valuable to continue pursuing better understandings. Why do you think it's, it's valuable? Uh, for a lot of different reasons. One, just for the, the pure value of self-understanding. I think that there, that there really is something intrinsically important about knowledge for knowledge's sake and knowledge of ourselves as a species of being a metacognizant species of being uh, a contemplative species. And I think that these types of questions about the fundamental nature of our humanness serve those types of ends. Um, But then you also have more practical translational value where you have so many disorders of consciousness, so many diseases that are related to something aberrant in the neural or the psychological and mental system and the better that we're able to understand how it is that those systems function then the better it is that in principle we we will be able to identify and troubleshoot situations and issues that arise in their healthy function you you mentioned that the the distinctiveness about human beings is that we have the intellect right yep that's within the aristotelian framework that's right Do you you think that other animals have the intellect as well? That's a great question. I mean, and this slips right back into a question of what is intelligence. Okay. Um, And it certainly does seem that there are lots of capabilities within other animal species to store memories, to abstract from those memories, to make anticipatory predictions, 
Um, you know, is that the same thing as saying that horses can complete mathematical problems? Not exactly the same thing. Um, but I think that any person who owns a dog or yeah. even any person who owns a rat for that matter would say very confidently that those animals have mental properties yeah. that could be qualified as intelligent. Okay. It could be qualified as intelligence, but not to the same level. Would it be possible? Is it possible for um, these lower level intelligence to evolve to the state at which we're at? Do you think it's possible? Uh, do you mean evolve over one lifetime of the animal or like over like millions of years? Of Sure. <laughs> yeah. Why not? So, so then, if that's the case, um, if that's the case, there's nothing really unique about human beings, is there? Human beings right now, or human beings like five million years from now? Human beings in in the general scheme of things, the general scheme of the universe. Like, so, I'm not exactly clear how those two coincide with one another. Okay, so because. If human beings, if, if we developed our intelligence through um, millions of years of evolution, and then say the rat can also do the same thing, then should we not think that we should, um, because, the, because the rats can eventually get to the point at which we're currently at, we should treat these rats differently now. So here's the thing, though. If we're talking about some kind of far-off descendant yeah. of the current rats five million years from now yeah. that have evolved new bodily forms and new neural forms and new mental properties that'll be a different species that'll be a different species definitely yeah that would be that well that that that's what evolution is is from five million years from now if you have a life form with a different body architecture a different neuroanatomy and a different mental life. It's no longer the same species. Okay. So that so was this, the, would that mean that um, tra the transhumanist movement, right? Yeah. We're, we're you know adding stuff to our bodies. Uh, that there's that gentleman that has an antenna in his head. Yeah. Uh, will transhumanists or transhumans be a different species than the human species currently? Yeah, that's a great. That's a. I mean, you're asking great questions. Um, and again, it really, that becomes a philosophy of biology question where, where do you draw those boundaries between species? And certainly if we're talking about incremental evolution, yeah. where it's an iterative, gradual change in the form and the function of the organism, then it's not clear where you draw that boundary line and say, aha, this is now a different species. Right. And though, would it, I, I'm just trying to understand, would it be the transhumans who have um, added, I don't know what you call them. It's not added property. Can we, can I use, is added property is the right word? Added. Added functions, added, added features that yeah. they've changed their anatomy. Yeah. Would we really think that they're different species? Well, I mean, I think that that is explicitly part of the transhumanist philosophy is to self-create yeah. into a new species and to develop 
past the point where evolution has brought us. I think that that is the goal proper of the transhumanist project. So how, how would you define a human being? How would I? <laughs> um, if someone's uh, like, we're in the suburb, sure. it's like, hey, Michael, you're a neuroscientist. Right. So you a human being. Well, see, now the problem with that question is that there is no definition I can offer you. Nothing? That, that, well, let me finish. The, I wasn't finished with the sentence, with the statement. So there's no definition of what it is to be a human being that I can offer you that does not exclude somebody from that definition. Okay. Do it. Well, I mean, if I say a human being is someone who has, uh, you know, 23 pairs of chromosomes, well, there's, there's organisms that are human beings who don't have 23 pairs of chromosomes. If I say a human being is someone who has the capacity for consciousness, well, there's human beings who are not conscious, who are in vegetative states. So that definition doesn't fit. If I say, oh, a human being is an organism with 10 fingers and 10 toes, like obviously that doesn't fit. There's no single definition that includes every person that is a human being. And so that becomes almost a philosophically impossible thing to offer a hard definition of what it is to be a human. What about the Aristotelian term of Aristotelian idea of a human being is just a rational animal? I have met some people who are not very rational. <laughs> uh, and again, let's talk about individuals who are in vegetative states. Like oh. it would be pretty hard to persuade me that that person is demonstrating some type of rational faculty when they're not even in a conscious state. Right. But to now say that that person is not a human being is a bridge too far for me. Right. But wouldn't, wouldn't Aristotelians say that the, when they mean um, human beings are rational animals, that paradigmatically human beings have the capacity for rationality? And obviously there are impediments, you know, if you have brain damage, if you're in a vegetative state, obviously you can't be practicing or uh, functioning uh, using rationality. So wouldn't that include all human beings that exist and never existed? Uh, I mean, so we just, yeah, so we just gave some specific cases where those individuals do not have rational faculties that are in place. Mm -hmm. So we could use it as a heuristic and say that as a species, yeah. that that is something that sets us apart from other animal life forms. But it becomes tricky because we're not able to then apply that to each individual. We can recognize really readily and really intuitively, oh, this other being is a human. Yeah. But again, there's no one single philosophical standard that then maps onto every organism that we would incorporate into that identity of human. So if, if we're able to grasp, you know, when we come across another human, what is it that we're grasping that makes us realize, oh, this is another human being in front of me. Like, there seems to be something. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you, yeah. And I think that, I mean, to give a pure scientific definition of what is that yeah. spark of recognition, like, we don't have scientific answers for that yet. We have some guesses and some hypotheses, but we're still at the very, very early stages of understanding how the brain works 
much less understanding how these very high level processes are actually transpiring in the brain. So if we can, if we can't, do you think we'll ever get to a point where we will have a definition of a human being? Uh, again, I'm not even convinced that that is a philosophically possible thing in a universal sense. Okay. Um, backing it up even a little bit more, we have a hard time even saying like, what is life? We say, okay, well, life is if you consume energy or you transfer energy from one form to another. Well, the asphalt on the road can transform energy from one form to another. Oh, well, it's something that consumes matter. Well, fire consumes matter. And then there's a question of are viruses alive? So trying to draw these hard boundaries yeah. around categories for life forms is just a really, really difficult thing to do, if not an impossible thing to do. Is the, um, is that, if, we ever, if we ever came across, say, a interspecies, like some sort of non-Earth um, species, would and say they're as intelligent as human beings, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe more intelligent than human beings. Would we consider uh, them in the same category as human beings if they have the same level of intelligence? So again, let's just let's just let's let's bring the question back down to earth here, because you have human populations that don't even recognize other humans on the same level as one another. So I think that the general trend that is a morally responsible trend is to have an expansive regard for the dignity of all life forms rather than to say like, oh, we just need to narrowly have regard for human life forms and then we need to measure every life form on its similarity or not to my form of life. Okay. So how would... Would you would you say that you're an Aristotelian or someone who likes Aristotle? Because that because I have a follow up question that I want to ask. Yeah, so um, I would say that that in general, I'm pretty solid with Aristotle. That he gets more right than he gets wrong. Okay, so as a as someone who is a fan of Aristotle, yeah, um, this is re uh, kind of related to what we've been talking about, but kind of not related. Um, is it possible for um, actually the first question would be would human do human beings have the freedom to uh, I guess the free will is the, is the easiest word to use are human beings uh, do human beings have free will man you're like just wanting to go through all of the classical hard problems yeah. of philosophy right here things <laughs> you know that i think it's like okay i gotta ask someone much smarter than me so. well let's again we've got to like really break down the question before we can even hope to resolve it and you have to start with a conversation about what is a cause what does it mean for something yeah what does it mean for something to cause something else okay and so using the Aristotelian framework here, he's got four different categories of causes. Yeah. He has the material cause, the formal cause, the efficient cause, and then the final cause. So the material cause is just the simplest concept of what is bouncing into something or what is the matter that is making an action happen. Then 
um, the formal cause is what is the structure of the thing that is happening. And I'll give, I'll give concrete examples. I'll just walk through these in the abstract first. The efficient cause is what is the agent that is making that event happen. And then the final cause is the purpose that is driving those events to happen in the first place. So, you know, kind of a standard example is with baking cookies that cookie baking happens. <laughs> so what's causing it? Uh, well, on a material level, the butter, the sugar, the flour, and the chocolate chips are causing the cookies. Okay. At a formal level, it's the recipe. It's the ratio of flour to sugar to butter to eggs that's causing the cookie to happen. At the efficient level, it's the active agent. So in this case, the baker mm -hmm. that is causing the cookies to happen. And then the final cause, what is the purpose? Well, it's my desire for a sweet treat that is causing the cookie to happen. Right. So now when you talk about quote unquote free will, the question often really means are humans causal agents? Are they causing things to occur that wouldn't otherwise occur without those internal processes of reason, of imagination, of desire. And I think that, yeah, firmly, we can make solid arguments and defenses that humans are uniquely causal and that we can even go so far as to say that humans are responsible for the things that they cause to happen. Okay. So we would say, so then that would be, the uh, that's the free will that we have that we're causing the, uh, the, I guess the actions that we're producing. Yeah. And that we have a degree of internal agency that we're, yeah, that we're not just these naked billiard balls mm -hmm. that are bouncing off of one another, but that we have higher level goals. We have yeah. higher level final causes that we're seeking. Yeah. And that we have internal processes to decide and to actualize different courses of action. Is it something that we develop over time? Uh, I Sure. I definitely think that humans, even the same human yeah. across their lifespan, can have a higher or lower degree of free will or a higher or lower degree of agency. So, for example, if someone is addicted to substances. Yeah. They've got a, they have compromised their level of agency, their level of autonomy. If that individual you know, is fortunate enough to seek rehab and to get a support system that restores some of their intrinsic decision-making so that it's not such a compulsive decision-making process, then we would say that that degree of freedom of that individual has varied across their lifetime. Okay. Is the, so are human babies born free and then they just, you know, as they get older, they develop agency, higher agency as they grow up. Well, so if you look at the neuroanatomical patterns of development, you have these long projections from the prefrontal cortex of the brain to other parts of the brain that don't really develop fully until approximately the mid-20s of an individual's life. Okay. 
And so much of what we would refer to as freedom or agency mm-hmm. also is importantly related to free won't, not just free will, but it's our ability to stop processes from happening. So if I have a biological instinct that's driving me to eat lots of sugar and it's yeah. driving me to eat lots of fatty foods, well, I have in my brain yeah. an ability that emanates from my prefrontal cortex to the rest of my behavioral centers to pump the brakes on that. And so that's a, that's a degree of free won't. Okay. And that, that free won't isn't actualized fully until at least an individual is in their 20s. So I wouldn't necessarily frame it as a baby is born with these perfect degrees of freedom and then it's a fluctuation after that, but that we actually grow into the full expression of our agency as our brain matures and as it develops these free won't inhibitory processes. There seems to be implications for um, law and order then for uh, if there's a, you know, a young teenager, let's say 19 year old commits a crime. Couldn't they just say, Oh, it's because my prefrontal cortex is not developed. So I'm not responsible for the actions that I committed. The, so there is really good grounds for saying that we should in fact hold people with different degrees of accountability, depending on where they are in their developmental process neurobiologically. And I think that that, uh, cognitive neuroscience Mm -hmm. justifies the intuition that has crystallized into our legal systems, wherein we treat juvenile delinquents differently than we treat adult delinquents. Mm -hmm. Is that, so then coming back to, um, coming back to the, uh, the agency question, yeah. Let's say we let's say you and I have clarified what we mean by intelligence, okay? And then we come back to the question of artificial intelligence. Would they have agency? Um, I so that's a really insightful question. I actually am more sympathetic and optimistic to a machine having agency than I am to a machine having consciousness. Can you explain? <laughs> sure. So uh, if a machine has some sort of built-in mandate from its programming, and that machine also has a particular goal system that is put into place for it, and that machine also has some sort of operational flexibility such that it has these decision tree branch points in its behavior, then those right there start to sound like the raw ingredients for what we could identify as agency. Now, if you add into that mix the capacity for experiential learning, or in other words, that a machine can actually have memory and that it can acquire new information from trial and error processes that feed into the decision branch points that its programs and its scripts are executing. That, that to me, starts to imitate agency so much so that I would dare say it starts to obtain a degree of agency. Hmm. But this is not the same thing as saying that there is now a qualitative phenomenon of what it is like to be a machine. It's just saying, well, why would it? Well, I mean, like if it's making these decisions and it seems like 
is a you know this decision tree that it, it it's 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 processing all these external factors and then making decision internally. Isn't there something happening internally? Like, There's something happening internally, but why does that require conscious awareness? It does. I mean, I don't think it does. It seems more like the philosophical zombie, where it's acting like a human being, but it's just a zombie. It's just a zombie. Um, but okay. So supposing that, supposing that these um, sophisticated AIs have some sort of agency, uh, what what would that, if we do a thought, what would that mean for something like um, if we use robots uh, to patrol the streets, you know, mm. let's just say, like would that, and if they were to, um, if they were to, let's say, if they were to kill someone accidentally. Yeah. Right. Who would be responsible for that? Would the robot be? Would the uh, would the robot be responsible? Do you think the robot would be responsible for that? Well, if we ever get to the point where we're putting life and death decisions yeah. into the hands of robots, then I think that we've seriously gone off the rails, and I think that we're in deep trouble. <laughs> I mean, aren't we already getting there with drones? So the the drones, as far as I understand, with military operations, are still being uh, controlled by, by a human end user. Okay. But if we get to the point where we're now just automating the killing of humans, that's yeah. that's hugely problematic to me. Why? What, why? How is it not like how? Like, the, do you tell me how is that justifiable to automate I mean, the killing of human beings? I, I would think that it's much safer for the country that's sending the robot. They don't have to. They don't have to have any of their soldiers killed. They just send in the little robot, do all the killing for them. Well, just because it's safer doesn't mean that it's moral. Why not? Like, okay, so we have World War One, right? And they have all these new weapons. Germany has all this new weapon. And at first people were like, what? You can't have these weapons. This is so unfair. But they have it. They're just like, you know, just like killing all the allies. But now eventually we got to a point where we're like, oh, okay. Everyone has this weapon, so we're okay with it. So it seems like we're just going to get to the point where, so, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would have the same intuition as you. Like, it seems terrible that robots, you know, if we, if we just left... Um, Killing. I don't want to say the killings of human beings, but let's just say the killings of a human being to robot. But it seems like, you know, give it a give it a generation, maybe two generations, and all the humans, everyone's like, oh, that's okay. So it seems like it's just a matter of intuition that's just going to shift over time. Well, but I would I would say that we need to be very very proactive to resist that trajectory. Okay, can you explain to me why? Like, what's your what's your reason for thinking that it's it it wouldn't be okay to get robots to do our war for us? I I guess that I want to flip war. that and say like that the burden is on the person who is asserting that that's a morally neutral maneuver yeah. to then just automate the termination of human lives. That the person has to justify why it's okay. Sure. That the like in this situation, the onus is on 
the person who is asserting mm-hmm. that that is a morally neutral trajectory. If you're saying that it's morally neutral yeah. to, to automate the termination of life, that, whoa, the burden is on you to make that argument now. But, it, but if, we've all, if we already think that killing your enemy, let's assume that killing your enemy is okay. Let's just say that. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm not willing to just say that because okay. I don't think that, like, I'm not, I'm not there. That's fine. Okay, say, say, I, okay, so I'll say killing, going to war and, you know, I mean, war is just, it's terrible. But we end up going to war, you end up fighting each other, you end up killing people. Um, so if you're already okay with that, why not think that if we program these things, these robots, uh, with the potential to kill as well and identify your, the enemy, do the killing. Why well, I think that's any different from sending in a soldier to do the job. So I want to rewind because I resist starting the conversation with the faulty premise. So if I can rephrase what yeah, you yeah. said and just, you know, make it a little bit more stark that you're asking if we just assume that evil is okay, yeah. then what's wrong with more evil? And I'm saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I'm not okay with that first proposition wherein we're saying, given that evil is good, what's wrong with more evil? Because I'm still back at, at square one saying, uh, evil is not good. And so I'm, I'm not on board with just this moral erasure of saying, well, war happens, there's no real moral valence to it, mm-hmm. so what's wrong with more of it? Like, I'm, I'm not even crossing that bridge with you okay so i guess the question the question i would have for you is do you think it's okay uh to have artificial surveillance to protect the citizens you know yeah that's a again these are these are heavy heavy questions (laughs) um and and i think that the reason why they're heavy questions is because there is no clear yes or no, that there is no clear binary response to mm-hmm. these questions and that it really starts to become an issue of, well, at, you know, what are the stakes? Yeah. Um, if we're saying like, okay, is it all right for the NSA to spy on my Gmail because yeah. they suspect that I might be doing something with all of this uranium that I've been purchasing covertly? Yeah that's a different situation than is it okay for the NSA to spy on my Gmail just because they're curious or because they think that it's fun looking to people's personal lives. What if it's the former case? Uh, so the former case being that like I've been amassing, yeah. somehow I've been amassing uranium yeah. in my basement and buying cyclotrons yeah. and the NSA has caught wind of this. Yeah. Then like, please, Spy on me. I will put that out there. NSA, if I if my purchase history ever shows enriched uranium and some kind of nuclear, you know, substrate for destruction, please spy on me because because something's gone really really wrong with my brain at that point. Right. So then, if that's okay, if that's okay, um, why is it? I think it would be okay to say, well, why can't let's just transfer over this to an AI that can do a better job and more, uh, do a more efficient job than, you know, having 10 humans do, uh, do surveillance on Michael. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, that's the treacherous present that 
we're having to wade through right now is to figure out where do we draw these lines? What are the trade-offs that we're willing to make for security versus privacy that we're willing to make for social stability versus some kind of enlarged sense of personal liberty? Hmm. Um, and I think that these are really, really important ongoing conversations that, that, there, that there are no simple rules that we can create. But, but if but if we are not necessarily saying you, but if we are okay with going to war and with killing, it seems to me that there should be no problem in saying, well, why have all our soldiers die? Why not just put in these robots and do the do the job for us? And if the robots explode, well, no one's really dying. It's just a robot that's exploding. You can always create new robots. You know, and they're not conscious. Uh, they have agency, but they're not conscious. Yeah. So I'm gonna again, like, kind of push back on even the foundational premises of this conversation, because I think that there's something pathological mm-hmm. with how normalized war has become. Okay. The the fact that it's become so normalized that we just take it almost as an inevitable outcome mm-hmm. of human interactions for one group to destroy the lives of another group. That like that already is symptomatic of a very diseased culture. But isn't that something that we've always done historically and always done as part all it seems almost all the animal groups have some sort of little fights, you know, maybe not classifying them as wars because they're not that scale, but you know they'll fight each other to the death. So it just seems very normal that but we would do the same thing. So why think that there's anything? Um, I mean, I don't want to say anything intrinsically evil, but why think that it should be normal for us to go to war and to unfortunately have people die in the war? So, I mean, you could also say, haven't we for the entirety of our history mm-hmm. succumbed to smallpox? Yeah. So why should we try to eradicate smallpox? Like if you're using that type of standard of well, this is how it's always happened. Yeah. Then we need to stop all of our research into medical science. We need to stop all of our research into anything that is improving quality of life for right. human beings because up until now that's not the way that it's been done. Right. So I just I reject that as a justification in say because it's just because you could say that about so many other things. Right. So many other things that we patently would reject as being morally justified so what about what about if it so would you think that all all wars are preventable possibly um i think that we should certainly take seriously a moral obligation uh-huh. to avoid war in every way that it's possible that's really? you know that's yeah that's that's a different statement than saying I think that all war is avoidable, but I, I definitely, definitely am on the side that we need to be very, very, very serious about taking any possible course of action Mm -hmm. that avoids terminating human life. Yeah. Why is it, why is human life so precious? What, like what, or is it, or do you, so, so, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, so that's where I just take that as a first principle of morality that human life is precious. Like, I I take that as a starting assumed proposition, and then build up my moral framework from that as the as the given. Right, but you must have reasons for thinking that. Sure, I mean, one of them is that I think that my own life yeah. <laughs> is is worth living. And then, you know, if I consider my own life valuable, uh-huh. then it becomes very difficult for me to say why someone else's life is not. What so murder. That how I mean how again the burden now is on you yeah. to convince me that someone has now disqualified themselves from being worthy of living because they've broken the law because they have given up their freedom to participate in a society in a law abiding society are there any other courses of action to contain and limit the harms of that person other than terminating their life uh, i don't know i'm asking <laughs> maybe put them in isolation for till the till the guy Right, and so that's you know that, that seem like that doesn't seem any more fun. That does not seem fun. I mean, that's that's it's it seems like that's the same thing as dying. Just put them in a box, you know, a two by two, maybe like two by two is terrible. Let's just say five by five, no window, nothing, completely black. Food. You, let's just say you get food. You get like lentils once yeah. a day for yeah. the rest of your life. Might as well just. Just does not seem like a sure no and certainly hey these are questions that policymakers and the political parties fight bitterly back and forth with one another on these on these on these points my my personal heuristic my personal rule my general yeah. rule is that human life is precious human life is intrinsically just by its very existence hmm. worthy of dignity and so the again the burden is on the other person to convince me that somehow a human has lost their dignity to be alive. Okay, so what if what if you what if there was a what if someone broke into what if someone broke into you know you you're staying over at your parents or something and they broke into your parents' house and then they had a gun to your one of your parents, right? Yeah. And you had a gun too because yeah. you live you live in America. You know, we have here gun laws are very, very strict. But say you have a gun, would you be willing to shoot them? Yeah. So you're assuming because we're assuming that you know all human life is precious right now. Right. So yeah. So I you know, and I'll say this is similar to what's called the trolley car problem, which it's that idea that like, okay, if there's a train and it's going down the tracks, and the track that it's heading down has ten people on it, and again, these are these are moral philosophy problems that in all likelihood no one is ever actually going to see, but it, it, it motivates our intuition about what's right and what's wrong. So if the train is heading down a track and it's going to hit 10 people, yeah. but you happen to have a switch in front of you mm-hmm. that can change the track that the car is going to go on. Yeah. If you throw that switch, it's going to go down the opposite track, but it still is going to kill two people. Yeah. 
what's the right thing to do in that situation? Is it to throw the switch and change the track and be the cause of those two people dying uh-huh. if it means that there are now 10 people who are not going to die? Right. The, and again, like I don't, I don't have, I mean, my, my inclination is yeah. to say like, oh yeah, it's better to save 10 people and to unfortunately have two people die than it is to have 10 people die. But then you can start to complexify that thought pattern and say, well, what if it's those 10 people are all mass murderers right? and those two other people are philanthropists right? and, and you can start adding on these different what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. And those are, those are very challenging, real problems that are worth going down those rabbit holes, but they don't change the basic starting principle, which yeah. is that ultimately that human life is valuable yeah. and that ultimately our actions are to be crafted with a moral regard for the preservation and the maintenance of that intrinsic dignity of human life. Okay. So in this event, in this thought experiment where someone has a gun to your, uh, to one of, uh, to your, say your mom, um, The difference, though, between that and the trolley experiment would be, let's assume the trolley experiment usually is always assumed that they're all innocent people, right? And, and then you can put the fat man in as well. But let's just assume they're all innocent. <laughs> the difference here, though, is this man that breaks into the house is, you know, is, is, seems to be doing a very evil thing of breaking into someone's property, stealing, then pointing a gun to someone's head obviously disregarding human life. So wouldn't you then have an obligation to, I guess, shoot them would be, <laughs> would be the word to use. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're trying to make this as realistic of a scenario as possible, yes. then like we have to take into account, like, am I a good marksman? What's the I likelihood? You are. I don't, you're American. Let's just say you are a good marksman. Yeah, so I mean, okay, so we're going to fiction, and that's fine, but like, let's acknowledge that we're fictionalizing this a little bit, and we'll just assume that if I pull that trigger, I save my mother's life, and yeah. I defend her from this person. Sure, then I, yeah, then I pull that trigger. That's that's not very realistic to how a lived scenario would go down, where there's bargaining, and there's communication, and there's some kind of interaction with the person, and I mean... God forbid I'm ever in that situation. Yes, I know that sure. there are, yeah, I mean, I know that there are, I'm, and I'm not trained in them, yeah. but I know that there are psychological te- psychological techniques for how to de-escalate and interact with people who are holding hostages. And, you know, so like that becomes an entire specialized realm of criminal psychology and of um, dynamics that I'm, you know, I'm just not trained in. But, but for the sake of the conversation, like, can I conceptualize a scenario wherein I would pull that trigger? Yeah. Yes, I, yes, I can conceptualize that scenario. So is the basis for thinking that human life is precious on your, on your end, is, the, is it just that you as a human being, you enjoy life and you then just extend this to all human beings? I mean, so that's, that's one entry point and that's a little bit of, um, you know, a self-serving entry point. Um, I, I am persuaded 
by transcendental philosophy and by the concept that like there really are these principles uh, that venture into the realm that we would call the sacred okay. um, and that that realm of the sacred yeah. is a part of the totality of existence. Um, and so then if you start to ask like, okay, well, what is sacred? Yeah. I mean, again, it's hard for me to think of many things that come closer to mm. being sacred than the intrinsic worth of the human person. What about dolphins? They're pretty special too. <laughs> I, was pretty... I was just trying to think, it, it, can we extend this to our closest kin within the, um, the animal kingdom? Sure. And I mean, and I have a pretty liberal view of the sacred where I think that the natural environment yeah. is sacred, mm -hmm. where I think that sentient life generally yeah. approaches that threshold of being sacred, certainly reverential. And so, again, that becomes, um, once you start talking about philosophy of the sacred, you really start to border into theology at that point. Right, right, right. That would be true. Um, what is, I'm kind of going way back now. What is, what are you currently researching within, um, within your field that would be interesting for us normal people? Yeah, so one of the things that has been really, really surprising to me is to do some comparative analysis between functional neuroimaging and okay. between ancient philosophy. So let me break this down for you. Yeah. Um, in 2017, I published a paper in an MIT press journal uh, called Network Neuroscience. Uh, the title of the paper is Fluid and Flexible Minds. Mm -hmm. And in this paper, I did what's called a principal components analysis on what's called the human connectome. Sorry that there's, there's, I'll throw out a few jargon terms and I'll break down what those are, okay. but this isn't going to be like pure jargon for the next five minutes, but a couple of jargony terms. So principal components analysis is asking the question of what are the primary parts that constitute a complex system. Okay. So that's you know that's the that's the question that principal components analyses are asking. What are the primary parts that constitute a complex system? The human connectome is the wiring diagram of the human brain. So it's a map of what part of the brain is talking to what other part of the brain, how strong the correspondences are in the activities between different parts of the brain and that very, very complicated, messy diagram of what is connected to what in the human brain is called the human connectome. Human connectome. Okay. So in this paper, I was asking the question, what are those principal components? Or in other words, what are those primary parts of the human connectome of that wiring map of the human brain? Mm -hmm. And in this paper, Fluid and Flexible Minds, I report that the first principal component is an integration of your primary sensory modality. So in other words, your capacity to see, your capacity for bodily sensation, uh, that those together drive this first component 
of the human okay. connectome. Okay. The, the second component of the human connectome is a network that's been termed the default mode network. And the default mode network is involved in mental processes of simulation. So anytime that you're simulating, for example, what the other individual in your conversation is thinking. So you're, if you're applying some kind of empathy and imagining the inner life of another person, that's one instantiation of mental simulation. If you're thinking forward to what tomorrow is possibly going to be like, that's a form of mental simulation. So the common core in the brain for these various different processes of mental simulations is called the default mode network. And that is the second principal component in the human connectome, in the functional connectome. Then the third through the 10th component in this paper, I demonstrate are correlated to intelligence. Hmm. So now, hold that thought. So here's these three layers at the level of the brain, just doing purely mathematical analyses on neural signals that we can derive a framework wherein that first component is the integration of your primary senses. That second component is the default mode network that's responsible for mental simulation. And that the third through the 10th components support intelligent processes. Okay, now let's shift gears. So I published that paper in 2017. Yeah. Then in 2018, for various reasons, I start to go on this Aristotle bender and I start reading these ancient texts and getting really excited about them. And there's one particular text that Aristotle wrote that's titled the De Anima, or the English translation is On the Soul. Yeah. And we started this conversation by talking about this idea of hylomorphism, or in yeah. other words, that these functions of our mental life are necessarily rooted in the form of the body and of the brain. So in Aristotle's book, The De Anima, he lays out this framework where he says that the soul in humans is a hierarchical system mm. of functions, and that the first level in that hierarchy of functions is the sensory level of processes. Okay. And then he says that the second level of functions is the imaginative faculty, and that the, the next level up from that mm. is the intellective faculty. And so now, oh my gosh, my brain starts to go crazy. My pattern recognition starts to see all of these direct hits because I had just spent the previous several years doing research to yeah. understand what's happening in the brain and to diagram this hierarchical systems model that now I'm seeing directly reflected in Aristotle's model of the human soul where you've got, again, in the brain, that component of your primary sensory cortices, that maps onto Aristotle's sensitive faculties. Okay. That second component in the brain of the default mode network and mental simulation, that maps onto Aristotle's second system, which is the imaginative faculty. And then in my analysis of the human brain, that series of networks that support intelligence, that maps onto Aristotle's diagram of intellective faculties. Right. So at this point, I'm freaking out. And I'm like, holy cow, this dude nailed thousands of years right. before we had brain scanners, thousands of years before the National Institutes of Health funded the Human Connectome Project. He just laid out a schematic diagram 
that we have now validated through these very sophisticated neuroscience technologies. So as soon as I saw that correlation between modern connectomics in the human brain and between this ancient philosophy of soul, I became really ravenously hungry to know what else did Aristotle get right. Hmm. So when you're talking about Aristotle's uh, intellect, is, is he meaning like the, does he mean the contempla- contemplation? Like what, what, is, what does he mean specifically? Mm-hmm. So the abilities for logos and Sophia. So the ability for logical process yeah. and the ability for contemplative wisdom. Okay. So, well, okay. So when, when you came across this and you're like, holy crap, you know, I've been doing all this work here, you know, with all the, with all the latest science, and then I read Aristotle, and this guy's been this guy's done exactly what I've yeah he done. scoop he scooped me like twenty five hundred <laughs> years before I did before I did this stuff. So, what else has it, what else in your in your research have you found that Aristotle's kind of laid out that you're like oh man this is this is pretty good stuff. Yeah, so that's that is that's precisely the germline of my research right now is to go through his text and to say what else did he get right. And so, in fact, this is something that I'm now bringing other scholars into collaboration with me. Um, okay. On August 3rd, here at the conference center at Harvard Medical School, uh, I'm organizing an event, and the title of the event is Soul and Brain. Uh, if listeners are interested in looking at it, the website for it is soulandbrain.org. Soul and it will be in the link. Yep. Uh, spelled out just how it sounds, S-O-U-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And if all goes according to plan, this is going to be the first in an annual series of conferences where we're going to have scholars invited from philosophy, from science, from medicine to ask this exact question. What else does ancient wisdom get right? Hmm. We're just now starting to tune into with our scientific methods. Interesting. So who, what kind of, um, what kind of, what are the, some of the topics that, um, the scholars are presenting on. Yeah, so yep. So one of the scholars is a neuroscientist who looks at the epigenetics of attachment and bonding. Okay. And so this starts to correlate to Aristotle's philosophies of love and of human relationships that are represented both in the Nicomachean ethics, the Eudaimian, yeah. the Eudaimian, excuse me, the Eudaimian ethics as well as in the De Anima itself. Um, there's a medical scientist who is going to be lecturing on neuroplasticity. And this relates to some of the concepts within the De Anima, as well as other texts about um, what Aristotle refers to as soul heat and soul. about soul heat. Yeah. So, so this idea that like, if the human brain is a lump of wax, okay. that there's certain conditions that can make it more or less impressionable to changes. And so that starts to sound very much like, the modern concepts of neuroplasticity. Mm. There's uh, another scientist who is going to be um, looking at the questions of human intelligence and okay. how those are related to principles of knowledge. Um, then there's a philosopher of mind who is going to be bringing in questions about the good in Aristotle, the good with a capital G, and this idea that, like, huh, are there such things as morally real? values that we can start to elaborate on using neurobiological analyses. So the, the short answer to your question is that 
this is the germline of a lot of the research and a lot of the the mental energy that I'm putting forward right now. And we'll see, uh, you know, over the next couple of years, we'll see if it pays off or if we're just going down a frivolous rabbit hole. Is, um, have you been, have you been learning Greek to go through the Danima or you just? Not yet. I've been relying on multiple translations and then doing the comparisons across different English translations as well as contemporary commentaries. But, uh, that, one day I will have to pony up and learn Greek if I want to like really dig in and take this as seriously as it ought to be taken. And, that, and, that, that day is not today though. Not today. Do you also have a podcast? That's right. Yeah. So it's called the luminous brain podcast uh, and that can be accessed at luminousbrain.com. That will also be in the link, but how, like, what, what's your, what's your podcast about? Like, what are you talking about there? The first season of the podcast is on this question of soul and brain and it's looking at that through the lenses of psychiatry, through the lenses of clinical therapy, uh, even through the lenses of psychedelic drugs like ayahuasca. ayahuasca. Have you done ayahuasca before? Have I done ayahuasca? I don't necessarily want to uh, <laughs> implicate myself in, <laughs> in anything of that nature. <laughs> uh, but I will minimally say that I have talked to people who have participated ayahuasca. in ayahuasca ceremonies, including one of the guests uh, on my podcast, who has also done a lot of research uh, that has been funded by the National Institutes of Health looking at some of these agents that create neuroplasticity and have very profound impacts on How does that the work? psychic individual. Like, as a neuroscientist, you must have thoughts on drugs that severely affect your, brain, your mind like when you're going to some sort of like trans, trans like when you have transcendental exper experiences when you're on like you know, when you're doing ayahuasca or something, yeah. you must have some thoughts on like why that's happening. Like, are they really having a real experience? Yeah. Um, those are great questions. And there's a team that's based in uh, the United Kingdom at Imperial College London. It's yeah. led by a researcher named Robin Carhart Harris. And yeah. funny enough, like just at the time of our conversation right now, IJ, yeah. uh, within the past 24 hours, Robin Carhart-Harris, in conjunction with another neuroscientist named Carl Friston, have just published a model of neural entropy. So in other words, they've published this, this theory that what's happening when people are taking psychedelics is that the strength of connections between different parts of the brain are going into a more chaotic state. They call it a state of, of neural anarchy. Okay. And that... And that that state of neural anarchy is somehow with, you know, we don't have the full details scientifically at this point, yeah. but that that is intrinsically linked to these insights that people have or to these feelings of self-expansion right. that people report when they're having these psychedelic experiences. Now, let's, let's, let's even take psychedelics out of the equation and just talk about uh, spiritual or religious phenomena. You have so many of the great mystics Mm -hmm. throughout history who say that when they have detached from their ego and when they have yeah. detached that that has created some kind of internal state of expansiveness that then is accompanied by feelings of charity or feelings of a universal oneness with all of life. Mm -hmm. And so even though I don't have, you know, the full set of answers to give to you right now, I will say that I think that there's, really promising research at that interface okay. where we're comparing 
the neural principles of psychedelic use with neural principles of mystical and spiritual experiences that happen without the use of psychedelics. Is it, would you say it's, it's something that people, if it is legal, let me just qualify it. If it is, if it is legal, that's, yeah. it's something that's people should try, you know, cause yeah, you know, we have, we're talking about like spiritual mystics or mystics in general, you know, they have these experiences, but it takes years and years to cultivate to come to the point in which they came to, you know, like, you know, hours and thousands of hours of meditation, you get to that point. But if you have some sort of a psychedelic that you could take and you could, you know, you could, you could close that gap, you know, of like 20 years to, you know, one hour. Right. Seems like, well, why don't you just do the one hour? <laughs> right. Or going back to some of your questions about criminal justice, what if you have someone who, for whatever reasons, has this neuropsychological tendency to harm others. Yeah. What if we're able to administer some kind of psychedelic? We give them ayahuasca and we give them magic mushrooms and then their brain connections reconfigure in such a way that now they have this sense of transpersonal identification that buffers against repeat violations. Should we then in that potential future, rather than locking people up, right. should we start giving them intense psychedelics? Right. You know, I think I think that these are I think that these are questions that are very worth serious consideration and that we're going to have to confront over the next decade as these very, very powerful plastogenic substances start to become better understood for their potentially therapeutic values. Mm-hmm. So, do you think that when people have these um, these psychedelic experiences, that there, there's there, that the transcendental experience is something objective, or is it just their subjective mind creating these experiences? Because it seems like everyone who has done some sort of psychedelic all report very similar things, and you would think, well, if it's very subjective, why would you report very similar things? Yeah, at least that's yeah. What I Uh, I think that whether it's through psychedelics, whether it's through emptiness meditation, whether it's through transcendental prayer, I think that there's something very powerful when a person is able to step outside of their day-to-day belief structure. Hmm. What is that? What what do you mean step out? Like, so when we're, so yeah so when we're able to take all of those assumptions that we use to navigate the world okay and set them aside for a period of time yeah what we tend to see is that people gain insights that they didn't necessarily realize when they were operating within the structures of those sets of assumptions and beliefs as a neuroscientist do you think that we should have these psychedelics be legal are you allowed to give a sure oh yeah yeah i'm fine giving opinion on that um i think that the legalization question uh needs to be nuanced a little bit more because to say that we should legalize something is not the same thing to say that we should put them in vending machines and just have people take um willy-nilly recreationally um but given a few different realities one being that Unfortunately, 
in the United States of America in 2019, we live in a grotesquely violent society, mm. given that in the United States of America in 2019, we live in a culture where major depressive disorders mm. are becoming more and more burdensome. And if you want to make utilitarian arguments that we're losing billions of dollars economically from these forms of mental illness, given that in 2019, in the United States of America, people are reporting higher and higher levels of social isolation and loneliness. Mm. I see it as irresponsible mm. to immediately foreclose the possibility of incorporating some of these substances that in responsible settings can be very conducive to an individual's reduction in violent anger or a reduction in social isolation or a reduction in the feelings that their life is hollow and meaningless. Right. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a funny thing. We, I mean, in Canada, we just, we, I, I should say we just legalized it. What last year, right? Yeah. Last year. And you know, it's still at first everyone thought, Oh, everyone's going to be high and walking. <laughs> everyone's going to be going to work high and, you know, driving high, but you know, it's like, Everyone, everything seems very normal. Yeah. You know, maybe just the smell of weed is a bit more common, but it's not even that bad. No, it's weird. Drug policy is a really, really screwy thing that has such a dirty financial history that's associated with it. And it's crazy, frankly, that you look at the drugs that are legal and that are socially mainstreamed in many Western societies, and they're drugs like alcohol that are terrible for your brain. Alcohol's terrible. Terrible for your liver, that it does so much damage psychologically and physically to the human person, and it's addictive as it's one. It's it's you know one of the more addictive substances. Hmm. Whereas some of these psychoplasto, excuse me, uh, psychoplastogens, or in other words, psychoplastogens. Yeah. So in other words, some of these psychedelics. Yeah. So uh, plasto referring to neuroplasticity or you know the, the rewiring of the brain. Uh, that suffix gen, G-N, referring to genesis, or that it initiates that that neuroplastic process. Okay. Uh, so a psychoplastogen being something that is not addictive, like you don't like you don't see people getting hooked on magic mushrooms the same way that you see people mm. getting into an alcoholic rut. And so it becomes a very curious historical question as to why our drug policies have become formulated the way that they are today. Isn't there, um, didn't they do research with uh, magic mushrooms where it, it allowed you to learn things faster or like, I think it was a case of like, I don't know if he said it. I think, I think it's like, what do you call those? Like a mushroom expert. And he was talking about how, his stuttering stopped after he took magic mushroom and it's still kind of weird to me, but yeah, no. And there's lots of mechanism. I mean, I, I, I am definitely open to that potentially occurring, you know, then there are questions of, well, why was this person stuttering in the first place? Was it because they had some kind of a neurosis and that the magic mushroom shifted something yeah. in their psyche that resolved that underlying neurosis. And so now they didn't have the stuttering that was the expression of the neurosis right. or that it was, that they had a rewiring of their motor system such that it worked in a more effective way that they didn't have the same muscular response that resulted in stuttering. But uh, in general, again, we're just barely starting to scratch the surface on the multifaceted 
potential therapeutic applications for some of these very powerful substances. Yeah, I mean, it would be very interesting to see maybe in like 20 years if, you know, if there's more research that we find out, hey, you know, if everyone takes it, everyone becomes more empathetic or something. Right, right. Well, we do see that with MDMA that, you know, it's referred to as an empathogen. So MDMA, which is an active ingredient in, uh, in Molly, Oh, yeah. okay. um, or ecstasy, you know, as it's called as a club drug, um, that that's one of the reasons why as a party drug, people will take ecstasy and then have sex that they report is totally mind blowing because like they're so intimately connected with their partner. And so there certainly are substances that we're seeing induce very profound states of empathy for other humans. Has anyone ever given it to animals? Um, Definitely to fruit flies because there have been fruit fly experiments where they've administered LSD to fruit flies and then demonstrated that their neurons in their little fruit fly brains yeah. sprout more dendrites and more axons. What? How, how do you... I, yeah, I can send you the, um, the link to this article that you can put in the link to the show notes as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, is there anything that the listeners should read on uh, neuroscience that for the layperson. Obviously. Yeah. So um, the, the best popular science resource is a book that was just published this year by Michael Pollan. Um, and uh, I should Michael know Pollen. the title. Oh. Yeah. I should know the title. I think it's called how to change your mind. How to change your mind. I think you're right. But I'll confirm that as well. But Michael Pollan. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. But that's, that's, the hottest off the press popular okay. science investigation of these substances. What about something more in, in regards to what you do? Is there like a popular version? Um, would it be, would it be? Uh, well, so I'm, I need to write that book. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned is what I'll say. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Awesome this is, yeah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, AJ. Yeah. And I hope that I hope that your listeners take something edifying out of this conversation. Oh, I'm, sure I'm sure they will. I learned a lot. All right. Thanks. You bet.